You're listening to the Lean Built Podcast. I'm Jay. And I'm Andrew. In this podcast, we discuss our manufacturing companies, lean principles, and the freedom that we're pursuing in life and business. So we're getting to the end of the year and we just bought a company truck. Nice. We've never done before or never really even considered before this year. Please tell Uh, me it's a Japanese mini truck. No, sadly, not a Japanese mini truck, although I would love to get one eventually. I would love to get a little four-wheel drive Japanese mini truck. We actually did look at an orange Daihatsu Midget 2 that was for sale near us. It was a little too much money for what it was, but it's a super fun, quirky little truck. Four-speed manual, left-hand shift, single-seat cab where you sit on center. It was super fun. What we ended up buying was actually just a 2019 F-250 four-wheel drive that had been a fleet vehicle. So it's got a lot of mileage on it, but that's mostly highway, a lot of interstate driving. Uh, We bought it used from a Ford dealership close to us. And the biggest reason I wanted a company truck was just because anytime we need to move things, pick up a whole bunch of EMT or a bunch of sheets of plywood or take it a large, a, a scrap run into the metal place, just not having a truck for the company to use means I'd have to rely on one of our employee-owned trucks to make that run. And that just creates complications and it's just not ideal. So yeah, yeah, buying a used Ford so that we have a shop truck that will be at our disposal all the time seemed like a reasonable thing to do, but the actual purchasing process was so not lean. It was distressing. Mm-hmm. Dealership, you said, right? Yeah, dealership. Yeah, just... All the paperwork and the overall process and even the workspace in which we did the process, everything about it was not optimized. So I'm just Mm -hmm. sitting there going, this is taking way longer than it needs to take. And because we were not financing it, we were able to just essentially cross out, initial out a whole bunch of the paperwork. Don't need a credit check, no Mm -hmm. lien, no lien holders, none of this, none of that, none of the, all these extra requirements. We were just buying the truck. Mm-hmm. But even there, having let them know in advance what we were planning to do, nothing had been prepped <laughs> on their end mm-hmm. in terms of getting the paperwork ready and having their portion of it filled out and having the sections that were not relevant already crossed out. It was just mm. square one. Right. It's fine. We got it done. We bought the truck. Great. It could have been a third of the time that I had mm-hmm. to sit there. If they had done that work ahead of time. Yeah. So that's that's asking a lot, I think, of just people that are just their schedule, their process of doing things just baked in. There's no motivation to move faster. I've been kind of leaning into that. What are some of the sources of motivation? And it's hard for a dealership like that to get people motivated, especially I'm not defending them, but I'm sure a lot of people say, oh yeah, I'm going to buy it. Yeah. Let me just run to the bank really quick. And then they never come back. back. (laughs) Yeah. That actually happened to me when I said, hey, I want to buy this truck run down to the RV dealership, see you know what it takes. I'll be right back. When I did come back, I said, okay, all right, I got my answers. And the guy's like, well, you came back? And I'm like, yeah, I said I was going to come back. He's like, that is like one of our classic joke lines. Oh, let me go talk to the RV dealership. <laughs> People split. <laughs> and then he did just z- zip out. Yeah. What's mm-hmm. actually funny is we looked at a couple of different trucks and it was interesting. We found another used truck for sale locally that was a 350 Super Duty with a flatbed. Mm-hmm. And I actually really liked the idea of a flatbed truck because you can forklift load it from the side. Mm-hmm. Did it have and stakes? For, Stake bed? Like, 
on the sides or just the flat? It was just a flat plate bed. Okay. And then we went and looked at it and I'm positive that somebody had tampered with the odometer on that truck. There Mm. was no way that a truck, it was a 10 year old truck. And once we saw it up close, it was beat up. Wow. And the odometer only said like 75,000 miles. And it's like, no, Mm. there's no way that a truck of this vintage that's obviously been used this hard has only 75 cans. So whatever was going on there, Mm -hmm. it was an instant walk away, no discussion. Once we saw the truck up close, total non-consideration. Right. But the truck we ended up buying, we had found, and I'd sent my, my facilities manager, Brian, to check it out. And when he had gotten to the dealership on Thursday, somebody was there getting ready to sign paperwork on the truck. And so I was like, oh, we missed it. It's sold. And then the dealership called us back yesterday morning. I was like, hey, actually, the buyer yesterday fell through. Are you guys still interested? And I'm not sure if it was for financing reasons. I don't know what the deal was with why the guy who was there to sign paperwork ended up not closing on it, but uh, he didn't. And so they called us back and said, we've still got it. Do you want to take it? And so we hopped in the car and drove into town and sat down, signed the paperwork, cut the check, and we have a Ford F-250 now. Great. And I'm actually really excited the same way for a lot of equipment, a lot of things that we've bought for the company you never fully think about all the things you can do with it until you have it available to you. Mm -hmm. And sounds like a machine. Sounds like a machine. Yep. I've got some interesting lathe options that I'm currently working on, which we'll talk about in a later episode because they're still pretty preliminary. Mm -hmm. But certainly at this point, trying to get a lathe on the floor in 2023 is completely off the table. Mm-hmm. By the time this episode airs, it'll probably be 2024. So for us, crushing things into the last few weeks of December, I've done that before. I've taken delivery of a machine on December 20th mm. and had to get a service tech in to get it powered and in operation and get stuff cut on it to be able to claim it. And that was a level of stress I don't need in my life ever again. We're not yeah. doing that. Yeah. 100% no, full stop, zero out of 10, do not recommend. I think my latest was a December 30th. I just remember 1230. Whoa. Yeah, it was. And we had scheduled it pretty far out. And Jordan, my Haas saleswoman, she, I'm like, hey, Jordan, you know the IRS tax code. Like, you get, it's got to be in service. And yep, we'll do it. And then she's calling me saying, hey, are, by any chance, you guys, will you be in on Saturday? And I said, I will for this to be able to expense something. But I don't remember what year that was, but I don't think it rolled into a Saturday. But got it <sighs> done. So yeah, again, December is crunch time for end of year planning, financial calculations, all the stuff that as a business owner, you have to deal with. But when it's September, you can postpone it. And when Mm -hmm. it's October, you can procrastinate. And when it's November, you can say, we're too busy. It's Black Friday. And then when it's December, you're like, ah, I've got to get this done now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so- of all the months of the year, December is actually probably my least favorite, even more than April, because April is actually tax filing month. Well, mm-hmm. business March, but tax filing month, that whole period of time is just a miserable blur every mm-hmm. year. It's always just like reading hundreds of pages of documents and checking up on definitions and back and forth with the CPA. It's just not fun. I don't like yeah. it. Yeah. But in December, that's when... I'm making the decisions that lay the groundwork for what I'm going to have to do in March and April. 
and realizing that if I don't pay attention now and don't do my due diligence now, that I'm going to be creating a world of hurt for myself in a few months mm-hmm. really motivates me to sit down and make sure all the T's are crossed and the I's are dotted. Well, that's what a good leader does. Cast vision, communicates vision, and then puts a strategy in place to execute on that vision. I always love Q1 because first of all, it's those first few months of the year through April, they're rigorous. There are no national holidays. Uh, first holiday, what would that be? Maybe Memorial Day, May, the end of May. Yeah. And so you, we just see lots of traction. We see lots of people purchasing, lots of people like executing on their vision saying, hey, this is the year that we switch over to Pearson products or whatever. And I don't buy machines in that quarter either. So it becomes a very profitable quarter. I usually buy Q3, Q4, that type of thing. Now it's pretty much Q3 because I know that lead times have actually have map extended. machine purchases onto your year that way intentionally? No, it's just, I think we're just so heads down working in Q1 that I go, well, everything that we're doing is working. But then yeah. when you get into Q2, especially the summer months, then you know the, it's a little lighter on the throttle. And what happens, you start going, okay, let's reevaluate that pain. What didn't work great and what do we need to change? Yeah, that's right. And then, so by that time I'm talking to dealerships, I think it's great that IMTS is in September. That's perfect. By October, November, that's when a purchase should be made and then take delivery by December and you get the whole tax write-off for all the that was the best thing. I get to section 179 right off that December 30th <laughs> installation for the whole year. You can't beat that. But No, I'm so conflicted about all this. And this is a concept that comes up a lot. I keep a moderate eye on the Bitcoin space. And we've talked about this before briefly on the podcast. And one of the things that I hear people talking about is the same way that financial regulations and business structures can create perverse incentives. The entire tax cycle of the year encourages companies to misallocate capital Mm -hmm. for the sake of short-term tax write-offs. That's right. And it's not that the purchases are bad. It's not that the equipment's not useful, but it's wild to me that you come up against these hard deadlines. It's like, hey, if you buy this thing today, you're golden. If you buy it tomorrow, you're sunk for a year. Mm-hmm. There's got to be more intelligent ways to do those kinds of things because the reality of companies buying things they don't need way ahead of schedule and turning them on for a day or two to be able to justify, yeah, they're in production. We're going to claim this this year and get that that entire idea of, I need to look for things to buy to offset profits that I'm showing to make sure the IRS doesn't scalp me. Yeah. It's such a nasty. It's not, it's a false economy of sorts because you purchase a machine, especially at the end of the year. And if you're making payments, depending on your loan term, you're going to have to have that cash flow for the next couple of years. Okay. So we financed the EC400 and I put it on a, I think that one's on a, three-year loan at Haas is doing like 1.9 or 2.9%. And I'm like, at the time when I bought it, inflation was really like out of control, seven, eight, nine percent So I'm like, yeah, 3%, yeah, let's take it. But, you know, we're coming on the one year, I think, yeah, coming up on one year of making, you know, those payments. I'm like, Ugh, there's that same old $8,800 a month machine payment. And so I feel the pain over the next 36 months, but I somehow don't feel the pain on that first April 15th 
it's something that it will catch up to you. It's not a good strategy. I know that accountants or CPAs will say, oh yeah, that's a great idea. Buy something at the end of the year. It's, hey, you either send it to Uncle Sam or you put it in your shop. Yeah, but that strategy, it's not a great strategy moving forward. Eventually, it will catch up to you. That's the fact. Does it catch up to you because the time scale to get things in use and profitable changes or because the gross dollar amount passes some certain threshold? How do you see that breaking down? Well, you could just write the check and all that money leaves your bank account and just pay cash and you're fine. It's a full expense in the same year. It's when you're making payments on things. So you say, oh, short-term game, I saved on taxes. I only put 10 grand down. But yeah, you're making these huge payments for the next two, three, five years, and it hurts your cash flow. But so. one of the main things I care about as a business owner, I don't think about cash flow that often. Mm-hmm. I think about cash position daily, which is the question of how much liquid do I have on hand? If I have a sudden expense, what can I, without anybody else's authorization, without needing any kind of financing, what can I solve today with money if I have a problem? Mm-hmm. Tim Ferriss, he, I have it printed off the top of my wall somewhere. In one of his podcasts, he was saying, if you have a problem, but you have the money to solve the problem, then you don't have don't the problem. Have problem. That's right. Mm-hmm. And that is totally the opposite of the bootstrap mentality that I built my shop with, which is if you have the problem, can you shoestring a solution for the littlest amount of cash possible and keep moving? Mm-hmm. But in reality, now the company is in a position now where it makes more sense often if we have a problem to find a way to spend money to solve the problem today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because the gain of having the problem crop up and then be gone, just done. Mm-hmm. not lingering in the back of anybody's mind, not weighing on us, not having to come up repeatedly in weekly meetings and be discussed ad nauseum. Just, we had a problem, we sledgehammered it, and the problem is gone. Mm-hmm. That's a tool I'm having to learn how to use, and I really don't look forward that much. So we don't do a lot of net 30 invoicing. Some clients we do, but most we don't. In a lot of cases, the way we do OEM manufacturing plus fulfillment is we bill on a regular interval and we just bill for whatever fulfillment services we did during that period of time. And because the client has already been paid for those things, they essentially just set aside our cut and then we invoice them and they pay it, which is totally different from wholesale manufacturing where you make something, you send it to the client, they're on net 30 and they're relying on that 30-day window to allow them to sell some portion of those goods to generate the revenue to pay for the invoice. When you're dealing with OEMing to people who are doing DTC sales, any units that you move that we fulfill for them, they've gotten paid in full for by the retail client. Mm -hmm. And so we have no clients who are on net 60 or net 90. We don't do any complicated long-term things like that because I'm not a bank. I have no interest in having long-term accounts receivable hanging over my head like that, that I have to keep an eye on. That stuff Oh, it's that terrible. stuff sucks up a disproportionate amount of mental bandwidth. I've done it before. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I'm never doing it again. It's crazy. You're financing your payroll and all your overhead expenses for the customer <laughs> using your own capital. It's terrible. It no, I think no I had told you the story of a, a large aerospace company that kind of was trying to bully us with net 120. Mm-hmm. And I told the purchasing agent, no, no, thanks. Reject it. Do you know who we are? We are, insert aerospace company name here. And I said, wonderful. That's nice to know. You don't wait 120 days for your paycheck, do you? Well, it's different in business. Actually, no, it's not. You trickle it down. The bank doesn't wait 120 days for me to make a payment. My employees don't wait 120 days. It doesn't work that way. So bye-bye. This is just some back office purchasing agent trying yeah. to bully a small company. But they no. say, do you know who we are? And you're like, yes, you are not my customer, Aerospace LLC. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. So, and those orders typically could come through with a credit card within a few hours anyways. So Yeah. Well, that's interesting. We do have done and continue to do occasionally government work where we are supplying holsters, mag carriers, other accessories to some large department or agency. And in a lot of cases, all that's just done on credit card. Yeah, exactly. Yep. And for the scale that we operate at, in a lot of cases, if an agency needs to buy something for their officers... They don't need to buy $100,000 worth of something. They just need $4,000 worth of this or that. Mm-hmm. And in those cases, yep, it's a government credit card. We just send them an invoice. They pay it immediately. We ship all their stuff. It works great. Yep. Yep. I've experienced the exact same thing. I don't think I've ever done terms with a government agency. It's typically like a GSA or a dot mill purchasing card. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I've seen other companies in our space start to get into more of those larger contract things. And I have never not seen it bite a small business right in the throat. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, you know what? I just thought of this. This is funny. We just had a series of large orders come through. The total amount we shipped to this customer, it's a car manufacturer, like tier one, top name. Everything that they were purchasing was paid through a series of different credit cards. We sell it typically in starter packages. So they're like, no, we don't want to do it. We can't do a starter package because it goes over like $1,000 limit. But can you break up the starter package? And they weren't even asking for a discount. They were just like, hey, we just need to purchase this. We're going to give you five different credit cards. We want everything. Just keep the change. We're like, okay, I guess that's how we're going to do it. So there's ways to get around pain from bigger customers. But the difference for me in cash flow projections and looking forward into the future and estimating when I'm going to have certain amounts of money in hand, I find that way less useful as a tool, as a business owner, than what do I actually have in the bank? That's right. Yeah. And totally one of the nicest things, one of the tools that I use most frequently is I just have text alerts set up on my phone rather than me needing to spend time to go look up something and log into my bank accounts online and check to see the balance here or there. I just have, for most of our company accounts, I have a daily balance text set. Okay. At some point in the day, it just sends me a text. Here are your balances, dot, 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 whatever. Mm -hmm. And that, even if I'm not thinking of it, it just refreshes that information and keeps it in my adjacent memory. Mm -hmm. And that way, when I think about what I have enough room to do, helps me gauge approximately because that's not invoices, that's cash in the bank. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. accounts receivable may not ever be received. Mm-hmm. 
We've yep. talked about bad debt before, and we have the advantage of because we get to be very choosy with our clients, not having a lot of collections issues. I know mm-hmm. some companies have a lot of collections issues. We don't have a lot of collections issues. Yeah. Yeah, we do pretty much the same thing. So I stopped looking at the business bank account years ago because it's so lumpy. We pay on our credit card weekly just to go to a zero balance. Really? Yeah. And just take 30 seconds and explain that to me. Why weekly? I'm going to say that we try and put as many expenses on our credit cards as possible. A, because it just makes purchasing easy. B, there's a 2% cash back reward. So there's that. It's easy to track expenses that way. It's far more lean because you're not over-processing by email and, hey, can I get a quote? Here's a PO. Thank you for the invoice. Here's a check. All that back and forth. I think it's totally crazy. And then there was a point where I just like to know that our expenses and our balances are as even as possible. So could we wait until the credit card due date to pay it off? Sure. I suppose that an average credit card bill for us might be call it 20 grand a week. Okay. Yeah. And so do I want to write, just sign off on four 20 grand payments, direct payments every Friday or an 80 grand at the end of the month? It just feels less painful. So it's a ridiculous psychology thing. But uh, so that's why I don't- Psychological value is real value though. Oh, it is. Yeah. It can affect you. But no, just moving from having a bottom threshold of money in the bank, knowing that, hey, if the mortgage payment hits, if our payroll hits, if the insurance premium hits, if our credit card hits at the same time, we don't want anything to bounce. So keeping right. that minimum, right. and it really is the same thing as a Kanban card. It's like your minimum dollar amount. And then when it hits the maximum dollar amount, I transfer money out of, we bank with Chase. So we transfer it out of Chase and go into a high yield savings account that right now they're paying around 5%. Gotcha. So yeah, that's- leveling out expenses over time does make a lot of sense. We put a lot of things on credit card too. And one of the things that I've done that helps me eyeball where we're at is that we have several different credit cards and uh, we use them for different things. We have a dedicated credit card that we use to purchase all of our postage, all of our retail shipping, everything. So I can look at the balance on that account and I know there's literally one thing going in there. Mm-hmm. So there's never any question about where those expenses came from that we have a separate set of credit cards for a few key employees that are all the incidental things we purchase for the shop. And then I have a separate credit card that only I use. And that's for bigger ticket items that I'm buying discretionary things that are not necessarily budgeted in advance or evened out throughout the year. So I can look at all those three accounts at a glance and see regular recurring daily postage expenses Mm-hmm. things that have been authorized by employees and then things that are authorized by me and not okay. commingling those things makes it way easier for me to just look at the balances and go, we're good. Mm-hmm. Or look at the balances and go, that number is higher than I expected. What did that come from? Mm-hmm. Right. That's good. So you have employees that have their own company cards? Is yes. that how that works? Yes. Yeah. And my general approach there is anything you need to buy that's under $1,000 don't talk to Tell me about, me about it just, afterwards. Just go do it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yep. And that's not, I keep an eye on those balances. If one employee is suddenly running up balances every single day, mm-hmm. I'm going to go check on that. But what I don't want to do is nickel and dime everybody to death and say, hey, if we need a new set of socket wrenches for some part of the shop, and it's going to be like 90 bucks for a nice set of socket wrenches, 
don't come ask me about that. Just order them. <laughs> right. Like the next time you're in town at the hardware store picking up this or that other thing, just buy them. Right. Yeah. I don't need to know that. There's no value that I bring to that process. Yeah. If we can't afford a $500 expense without my authorization, we should close the company. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is another thing that I struggled with early on is go back 10 years ago, I would see people buying something small from us, maybe like some vacuum gasket cord and a gasket slotting end mill. That's going to be around $100. And then they would pay for next day air expedited shipping for mm-hmm. like $50, $80. And I didn't understand that, but I do understand now that the money that you save to go from a $50 next day air bill down to a $10 UPS ground bill, but it keeps the machine down for two days while it's in transit. Yeah, the $50 next day air is the least expensive option, but you don't want to get into that habit. That's the thing. And so implementing lean, you would say when we hit this minimum amount of vacuum gasket, we just order it and we pay ground shipping. Then it sits in our possession when we need it. There it is. Absolutely. I remember hearing, I think it was Paul Van Meter from Pro Shop talking about working with some clients who they were onboarding and realizing that the customer was spending enough money annually in expedited shipping charges for material, tooling, tool holders, different things that simply better prediction Mm -hmm. on what they were going to need so that the instant you enter a job, the system automatically tells you, hey, you need 10x of this drill in order to complete 500 parts of this material, and you only have two in stock, order those today. The cost savings by having better prediction and avoiding expedite and overnight air charges would cover essentially almost 100% of the cost of a new ERP for the year just by warning you so you're not swerving left to right, bouncing from guardrail to guardrail, incurring all these extra expenses. Mm -hmm. And we see the same thing. Sometimes clients will place a $50 order or a $30 order and pay 25 bucks for US Postal Express one day delivery. And as soon as I look at that, something inside me twinges and I go, that looks like a failure to plan. Mm -hmm. But I don't get to judge anybody else's circumstances. They may have had something come up, an opportunity or a need right then and go, I need this tomorrow. Yeah. And we're one of the few companies in our space that can order from at 3 p.m. on a Friday afternoon and pay US Postal Express and it'll ship by 4.30 and they'll have it in their hands on Saturday. Mm-hmm. Like, awesome. I understand that we have deliberately gotten to a point where we're providing a kind of value that many of our competitors don't offer, mm-hmm. and it comes at a premium, but we've given the customer the opportunity to choose that premium if that value is worth it to them. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. So we were, I use McMaster Car as an example, like they're such a phenomenal company and they keep like over 99% of items in stock. It's actually really rare that we have to wait for stuff. And the stuff we typically wait for, it's understood like special sized gauge pins that get manufactured and delivered within one to two weeks, which is reasonable. I've even received like next day air packages from their Chicago facility showing up next day air here in California, which is amazing. I love that. We'll keep going back. But that was one of the things I told my team years ago. I said, man, if McMaster Car has a million SKUs and we have 
under a hundred, we have to have our own products in stock at all times. And really it was just a bottleneck of production. We just didn't have the production capacity to keep up with the growth of the company. Now with bringing on like the MX, the nine axis mill, Milturn and the EC400, and then you know the Rotovice, we've got Rotovices on everything. Now we're actually ahead of it. We're doing more volume with fewer people and it feels chill. And now we pretty much have everything 100% in stock. Like after our Black Friday sale, and also December this month has been really good. It's like they walk in, they've got all these orders and our orders are not smaller. They're multi-box, heavy, things like that. Yep. And and we're getting most of them shipped same day. Like for example, I was so proud of my guys. The official shipping cutoff time is 2 p.m. An order came in for 10 vacuum power units at 2.40. And I'm like, okay, well, that that's cool. And the, oh, and the customer paid next day air shipping. And we got it on the truck. And so they'll have it on Monday. And I went, that's great. This, this may not have happened four years ago had we not invested in new technology, cutting the waste, following the lean waste, you know, that those types of practices. So yeah, for us, we don't have an officially posted shipping cutoff, but generally most weekdays, anything that gets ordered by 4 p.m. ships same day if it's in stock. Mm-hmm. We offer some products that have to be built to order. And if they order at 4 p.m., it's getting shipped tomorrow. Yeah. But in a lot of cases, myself or my production lead, Anthony, will make a mail run at the end of the day. And our mail lady who works the counter at our local post office, which is about six minutes from our shop, she knows to expect us every weekday at about 4.45 with a sack full of packages. Love it. Because we normally have a pickup around between noon and two. Mm-hmm. But- In principle, if a thing is in stock and a customer orders it and we can get it packaged and labeled today, Mm -hmm. I never want those sitting in a bin overnight in our shop and leaving the following day. Yeah. It's great service too. And I probably care about this too much. I should be willing occasionally to let things roll, but I want to be able to say, if you got a tracking number from us, your package is at the post office today. Mm -hmm. And that's so different. I actually saw a really funny thread where our shipping was being discussed on Reddit. And somebody's like, yeah, I ordered it like 11 a.m. from Henry Holsters and I got a tracking number at 11.08 a.m. And the very first comment's like, yeah, a lot of companies do that. They probably just printed your shipping label so-and-so. And the guy's like, oh, no, no, no. I got the package the next day. That's awesome. Yeah. And realizing that a lot of companies do do that, where the second you place an order, they generate a label. It hasn't been printed yet. Your order isn't remotely near picking and packing and shipping, but they've generated a label so that their system can auto email you a tracking number. And when you click on that tracking number, it says pre-transit label has been generated, but US Postal has not received the package yet. Mm -hmm. And it might sit that way for days. That never do because that is garbage. That is retail shipping slate of hand right? to try to pacify the customer and make them feel like their order is being handled promptly when it's not. So let me ask you that. you In your custom software, it integrates, you have a ShipStation integration module, right? Yes. Okay. So this is my question. Let's say a customer orders at 10 a.m. We'll literally pack it generate the label. Label is on the box. Box is on the cart. UPS picks up at three. Yep. 245, something like that. And then we'll have an email around lunch. Hey, I see that my package shipped, but it's giving me an error when I try and track it. 
And I go, yeah, it's because it gets entered into the system in transit when our UPS guy, some UPS guys can scan them on site, but other guys, they'll just load the truck and then it gets scanned at the hub and then it yep. populates the information. In ShipStation, do you, is that a, is something that you turned off or something? No. So the way it works for us is we generate the label at the moment the order is being packed and we have a one piece workflow at our pe- picking and packing station. So mm-hmm. there is no printing a label and then packing it later. Your label gets printed as the contents of your order are getting put into a package. Label goes on, it goes into our outbound bin. Depending on the day of the week, our US mail, which is the majority of our volume, because a lot of our orders are under one pound, that comes anywhere between noon and 4 p.m., depending on the day. On Mondays, it's a heavy delivery day, and our driver always has a lot more outbound mail on his route to deliver. So he normally gets to us later, usually between 3.30 and 4.30 p.m. Any other day of the week, we normally have our mail pickup around lunchtime. So our process is we come in in the morning, we do our 3S, we clean the shop, we organize, we make improvements, we have our morning meeting, and then our shipping team grabs packing slips for every order that came in overnight. We have preset filters to sort them by carrier and order of priority. So we pack UPS ground and US Postal Express first because our normal UPS pickup is around 10 a.m. Wow. So that's just where we fall on the driver's route. Yeah. And so we generally pack UPS first because it's going to get picked up earlier. And then as soon as UPS is packed, then we pack US Postal One Day Express. Then we pack priority. Then we pack first class mail. And then multiple times throughout the day, as new orders roll in, we will print those, sort them, and then pack them. So typically at the end of the day, if you order and place an order for UPS ground shipping and you place that order at four o'clock, it's not shipping till the next day because our pickup for the day has already come and it's going to roll over. Even if we can get it packed, UPS ground sometimes rolls over to the next morning just because the UPS hub is a lot farther from our shop and driving there to drop off one package is not practical. Mm -hmm. Well, it it sounds like we have the same process. Like we don't generate a label because we get the actual package weight to generate the label. We don't generate right. that label and just sit on it to pacify the, the customer. Right. The window of time, if we pack your order at 10 a.m. on a Monday and the U.S. mail carrier is not going to be there to pick it up until 4 p.m., we generally don't get emails mm-hmm. in that six-hour window where someone's like, I got a shipping notification, but it doesn't show us in transit yet. Yeah. We don't right. get a lot of emails like that. Yeah. We probably get one in a couple hundred. Okay. But I'm just curious about that. Yeah. And every once in a while, we might. And we just say, yes, your order is packed. It's in the outbound mail bin. It will be picked up today. I normally tell customers if they have a question, your order will be in transit today. The only promise I make to you is that it will not sit overnight in our shop with an active label on it. Mm -hmm. If it's got an active label, it will be at the post office today. Yeah. If that means that I have to throw the mailbag in my car at 450 and zip in the town to hand it off to the post office, I will do that. Mm-hmm. Right. Because I, I want to be able to say with a completely clear conscience, no BS, no fudging. If we packed it, it left. Yeah. I think it's dependent on the customer. Like when I see that an order has shipped, oh man, I ordered some, what was it? Oh, handrail clamps for our upstairs office area. And it said, it's shipped. And I click on the tracking. Okay, it just hasn't been picked up. Next morning, still not working. 
two days later, still not working. Well, they literally did that because they have a three-day shipping guarantee. It doesn't say if your order is shipped. It says if you don't get a tracking number within three days, your next order is free. Sleazy. And I'm like, okay, I just that I just can't, I don't understand how people do business like that. It's like you a know? fast food restaurant that says, we will hand you a receipt for your order within 60 seconds. Uh-huh. Your food may take an hour, <laughs> right. but we'll have you your receipt within 60 yeah. seconds. Yep. That is a calculated exercise in non-value. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So we're at the end of the year. Looking back, what successes, failures, what are you going to change for next year? What are your thoughts on that? Oh boy. Well, the two big things that stand out to me this year are that I need to do a better job communicating with my team internally on what the high level goals are and reiterate those more frequently so that everybody understands where we as a group are headed. Yeah. And within that, communicating those goals, I also need to clarify more concrete deliverables. For every employee, we don't have a lot of internal goal setting in terms of skills and training for our individual employees. And finding a way or a method of having goals that are understood and have a deadline. Like a new employee comes in, not necessarily new to the company, but new to a certain area or new to a certain machine or station or skill. And we say, our goal is by X date, six weeks from now. You are able to run this section completely unsupervised, QC the parts, and reliably deliver zero defects to the next station. We don't do anything like that currently, and I would really like to find a way to give employees more ownership of the areas they work in by making it very clear and explicit. So that's a whole thing, and I need to think more about exactly how I want to do that. The second big thing for me is I have to do a better job of letting big picture things get handed off from me to other people sooner because I like implementing. I like the nuts and bolts. I like the details. I like getting into a station and actually working on the tooling and working on the parts and actually really understanding it. I think there's enormous value to go into the Gemba and actually seeing the details and putting my hands on things. And even just this week, I was working in packaging, just putting labels on bags and checking with things and finding ways to make improvements. When I was walking by, I noticed an employee working on a thing that she was obviously struggling with. And I said, hey, pause on that. Let me take that station over for half an hour and I'm going to run it. I want to see if I have any ideas about how to make that better. We were putting labels on bags for a product And the way that the bags were being packed by the vendor to ship to us, they were coming out of the box with a crease down the middle of the bag because they were being folded in half and then jammed in a box. Mm -hmm. And that made it really, really hard to reliably lay the labels down without Without wrinkling. Wrinkle. Yeah, sure. Mm -hmm. And she was really struggling with it. I tried to do it and I was struggling with it. It did not work well. Mm -hmm. And so I spent an hour trying to figure out better ways to organize and lay out the work whether we should be lining them up horizontally to the operator, vertically to the operator, doing them in stacks, doing them in singles, loading left to right, right to left. There's a bunch of different things we tried. And I think we made some legitimate improvements. It's not a solved problem. I like getting into the details that way, but on a lot of the big picture things that are really going to make a difference to the bottom line for the company, 
my main work is in the ideation phase where I come up with a concept. I look at something out in the future and I go, that's where I want to head exactly how we get there and which intersections and roads we take to get to that city. I don't know. And honestly, I don't need to know, Mm -hmm. but I have a very hard time letting go of it that early on and saying, that's where I want us to get to. I don't need to know how we're going to get there. Well, you should, at a minimum, lay out the principles. Well, yeah, because baked into that willingness to hand it off is saying, I don't need to know how we get there. And to a certain degree, I'm willing to not care about Mm -hmm. how we get there. Mm -hmm. Not that I don't care in principle, but- If we're trying to go from point A to point B, it's never the case that I expect us to make a major change in the company with 100% efficiency, no mistakes, and no lessons learned along the way. Mm -hmm. Yep. We are always going to be finding things out by bumping into them. Mm -hmm. There's going to be waste in that process. Even the processes that we have the most dialed still have waste in them. Mm Mm-hmm. Yep. Things that we do every day that we do well, that we do to an outstanding level compared to how we used to do them, still have a ton of waste in mm-hmm. them. So I took a question. Well, you were there at the Q, Q&A at the M-Hub speech in 2018, yeah. where a guy said, hey, how do you implement lean in a prototype environment? And my first response is prototyping is just, it's terrible. It's incredibly unlean. Everything is slow. There's lots of waiting. You're buying excessive amounts of inventory. Like, I think this socket cap screw might just work at this length. Go to McMaster. Oh, the minimum is 100. Yep, I only need five, but we're buying 100, that type of thing. But in principle, it means that you are willingly stepping into something that has excessive amounts of waste, but that waste needs to be amortized out over the course of the life of that product if it's successfully launched. This year, I would say, looking back for us, one of the things that I had at the beginning of the year, the goals, which I didn't personally, I don't think I went back and announced it because I don't want to throw my team into like, oh, this is the year for new products. I just, hey, I'm just going to announce like mid-April, we're doing this new product. It's ready to go. Let's just sit down and not nefariously catching my team off guard, but just announcing it as appropriate and then trying to communicate. And I told John, I had John's, his name pops up a lot, but he's my longest serving employee, very well-rounded, skilled individual, can program, can design, can run every machine in the shop. So I'm like, hey, you're going to be assigned as the prototype machinist and it's going to be nasty. It's going to be slow. It's going to be frustrating. You're going to spend lots of time programming, doing setups to make just a handful of parts like a handful, literal handful, like five parts. And it's going to be okay. We're just going to do it. It's not going to look lean. It's going to be messy. But that type of thing, like we could still find those principles. Like when it's scrap, it goes in the black bin because we don't want some pseudo good part in the value stream. It needs to get off the shop floor, off the Gemba, like you said earlier. Yeah. But yeah, that's one thing that having to communicate that it's even the negatives, like we know this is going to be rough. It is going to be, we're going to lose a productive member of the team, John, to this new vision. Don't bother him. (laughs) That's okay. Over-communicate that. Well, when I think about prototyping, because we often are indeed new ideas, although they tend to be in a fairly consistent framework of types of products, we are often R&D new things. And 
for me, the efficiency in prototyping comes from having a really, really good question and decision flow to make sure I don't make dumb mistakes that cause me to do a bunch of rework. And certainly, like I know a few guys who do a lot of prototyping that I've talked to, one of the things that they've gotten really good at is estimating time, estimating material cost, and estimating tooling cost. And those are painful lessons learned over many jobs where they ran over budget, over timeline, over whatever for a variety of reasons. Certain kinds of efficiencies don't scale to prototyping. The idea that, hey, I need a four by four inch part, but I'm going to build it out of a six by six inch block in production, we would never remotely consider right. That's crazy. throwing away that much material. But if in a prototype environment, it means you can standardize the bar stock on your rack down to four common sizes. Mm-hmm. And in many cases, the cost of that extra bit of material you're turning into chips is way less than the cost of stocking another size of slightly more optimized bar stock. The balance of what things cost versus what they allow you to do is very different. So it's not that there's no gravity. It's just not earth normal. Yeah, that's right. It's a little bit different. You got to moonwalk. Yeah. No, I literally brought that up in that. And well, the most latest speech that went live on our YouTube channel on Thanksgiving was standardization, standardized work holding. Like stop doing a setup from step one, open a file and shout out to Rob Lockwood. He uses what he calls the container method where he has a- Fit in the box. Yeah. It's just, you go up to the, what's that, the the F formulas or I can't remember infusion, but you go and you just type in your stock size and then it scales. And then you just say, I have a three and a half inch cube part. Great. Go up to the formula table, type in four, it scales it. Self-centering vice, five axis, one and done type of work. Yeah. Yeah. And along those same lines, I said, Hey, we've gone to bar stock sizes that they're, they either end in a 0.0 or a 0.5 half inch. That's it. So yeah. we're not doing 37.64s anymore. That's crazy. And an eighth doesn't exist. No, it's just well, you cut it off, you recycle it, you get 60 cents back for every $3 in aluminum you you pay for. So, and it's such a small part of the cost, you know, the material yeah. of the finished component. Yeah. Standardization is huge. So I think our next episode should be about lessons learned from the year in a little more detail, dig into it, get nitty gritty. But I think it'd be interesting at some point in the future to do an entire episode on false economies, Mm -hmm. places in the company, places in our industries where we see a perception of savings or a perception of value that when you actually pull back the cover and look under the hood, it it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. And it, it feels like savings. It feels like improvement. But what it actually does is just move waste somewhere else. That's right. And there is... Almost all changes and improvements in the process always shift some waste somewhere else. Mm -hmm. Very rarely do you get a chance to completely nuke all the waste in a process and have there be no residual waste that washes away to someplace else. Mm -hmm. But it can be really easy to be like, oh yeah, this is going to improve this thing and you do it and then go, wow, we just made this other step way harder. Yeah. We made this other person's job, this other workstation, way less mm-hmm. efficient. Well, I've railed against that, like super speed machines. Like we've got what, one, two, two super speed. Yeah, we have two Haas super speed machines. 
they're fast or faster, but a VF2 is plenty fast. Even our slow VM3 is still a fast machine. It's just if you are producing parts quickly and they're stacking up and your next process is slow, you haven't gained any speed. You've just pushed that waste to the next machine. So no, we'll save it. I'm about to rant. (laughs) Okay. Well, let's open up with a rant next episode and we will catch up then. Sounds good. I'll see you then.